0: Welcome to Getting Comfortable, a student podcast dedicated to unpacking the relationship between Islam and the West, where no one is an expert. I'm Raisa. And I'm Isabella. The intention of this podcast is to lead with curiosity
1: and have a conversation which identifies concepts, analyzes content, and centers different learning approaches pertaining to the relationship between Islam and the West. Last episode, you guys listened to Kat and Amanda discuss Aida Verdi and the Colonial Legacy. Today's episode will be split into two parts, discussing the Hajj narratives and early Muslim voices. Part one will be covering Muslim voices in America during the post-Civil War era, such as the Nation of Islam. Transitioning to part two, we will then dive into the fifth pillar of Islam, the Hajj, which is the Muslim pilgrimage. We will also be discussing human rights activist and American Muslim minister
0: Malcolm X's experience when he was performing his Hajj. So in part one, we will be referencing three readings that will be provided for our audience in the description. The first is an autobiography of Omar ibn Said titled The Life of Omar ibn Said," written by himself. Omar ibn Said was enslaved and was taken from Africa to South Carolina. What was interesting about Omar was that not only was he enslaved, but he was also a Muslim, a Muslim who in fact spoke Arabic. After discussing this autobiography, we will then dive into Professor Allah Alores's analysis of the autobiography. Alores guides his readers through Omar's autobiography and debunks its significance to American literature, in the introduction titled, Arabic Work, Islam, and American Literature. Concluding part one, we will discuss the post-colonization era to Muslim America and the Nation of Islam by Don Marie Gibson. So. Starting with the autobiography, my first impression was as I was going through the reading, I realized how naive I was when it comes to early Muslims in the U.S. I was under that impression how Muslims came through immigration into the U.S. or through the refugee crisis, but in reality, it turns out that early Muslims, or even earlier, were actually slaves who were Muslim and spoke Arabic. There was a quote on page 3 from Ala al intro where, Muslim slaves came to other regions from the Americas, such as leaving Arabic writings in Panama, Colombia, Trinidad, Mexico, and Brazil, and carried Muslim amulets with prayers and passages from the Quran. So after reading uh, Omar's autobiography, it's kind of like the thesis was decolonizing Orientalism, how some slaves were Muslim and spoke Arabic, just like that realization and connection I had with the whole um, how early Muslims came to America. So, the autobiography of Omar ibn Sa'id splits into two parts. The first part being a surah from the Quran called Surah Al Mulk. What we first should know about the surah before we move on is that the meaning of Surah Al Mulk means the sovereignty in reference to one God, Allah. Omar includes the surah to highlight his submission to God and his value to Islam in being a Muslim. Mulk is a root word that comes from malaka, meaning to own and to have dominion. This is that perfect allusion to slavery, meaning absolute power through ownership. This also contends that it is God who is the owner of all and everything. Omar refutes the right of his owners over him since only God has the mulk, or the power and the ownership. The second part of his autobiography goes over his
1: capture in Futatoro, which was between Senegal and Gambia rivers. He begins his life with, I cannot write my life. I have forgotten much of my talk as well as the talk of the
0: Maghreb. So the Maghreb means West, meaning in this case West Africa. And growing up, Omar went to a madrasa or an Islamic school where he learned Islam from three sheikhs or Muslim scholars. And he continued seeking knowledge for 25 years. After those 25 years, he quotes that there came a Big army that killed many people took me and walked me to the big sea and sold me into the hand of a Christian man who bought me and walked me to the big ship in the big sea. You may have noticed the repetition of the word walk, and this is actually a footnote on that same page where the word walk calls forth the processions of chained slaves, the physical repetition of nameless slaves to which he probably submitted. He sailed in the
1: big sea for a month and a half until they reached Charleston. He writes, and in a christian language they sold me a weak small evil man called johnson an infidel who did not fear allah at all brought, bought me i am a small man who cannot do hard work i escaped from the hands of johnson after a month and i walked to a place called
0: faydel so faydel is a place that he refers to in north carolina so what has happened so far in this autobiography is that he was captured ended up in charleston and was enslaved to this christian man who was harsh to him and then eventually, Omar was able to escape, escape to North Carolina. Unfortunately though, he was caught where he then quotes, took me walking with them for 12 miles to a big house and could not come out of this big house called jail in the Christian language for 16 days and nights. If this is to when a man named Bob Mumford took Omar out of this big house mentioned on page 65, Omar stayed at the Mumford's place for four days and nights and met a man named Jim Owens, who was the husband of Mumford's daughter and stayed in their place until now. After meeting Jim Owens, he asks
1: on page 67, are there among you men as good as Jim Owen and John Owen? They are good men for whatever they eat, I eat, and whatever they wear, they give to me to wear. General Jim Owen and his wife used to read me the Bible and they used to read the Bible to me a lot, he says on page 73.
0: And from this interaction with the Owens, Omar has the follow-up question of how this is a good generation, mentioned on page 71. He questions, do you have such a good generation that fears Allah so much? And this is where I had to do a little reflection and think that I think Omar makes this connection that those who are kind to him, such as the Owens freeing him from the jail— do so because they fear the same Lord. As mentioned in al reading, Omar lives his life analogous to Muhammad's, how he spreads the message of Islam and suffered from that. Those who rejected and made Omar suffer are the unbelievers in this case, the slave owners. This was then mentioned again on page 77, where Omar fell into the hands of a small, weak, and wicked man who did not fear Allah at all, nor did he pray nor read. I was afraid to stay with such a wicked man who committed many evil deeds, so I escaped. After a month, Allah, our Lord, presented us in the hands of a righteous man who fears Allah and who loves to do good deeds and whose name is General Jim Owen. These are righteous men. This is where, like at the end of his autobiography, uh, scholars would say his encomium or Omar's piece that praises someone so highly, and in this case was Jim Owen's. He continues his encomium on page 79, where I continue in the hands of jim owen who does not beat me nor call me bad names nor subjects me to hunger nakedness or hard work during the last 20 years i have not seen any harm at the hands of jim owen
1: when omar's writings were discovered he was sent to new york in 1836 to meet a man named old paul who also went by the name of laman kibi it was old paul who then presented omar's work to a man named theodore dwight who we will now discuss as a transition to Ala al Intro to Arabic Work, Islam, and American Literature.
0: So, after reading Ala al work, his thesis-slash-mission was to investigate the connections between Omar's autobiography and other narratives from escaped slaves by analyzing Omar's text and by exploring the influence of the network of contemporary editors and translators who worked on Omar's text.
1: Omar's manuscript and other contemporary accounts refer to readers' connections and networks of transmission that should influence our view of how Omar's contemporaries read his text. Omar's autobiography, written in Arabic, is unique because it is the only extant autobiography written by an enslaved Muslim in Arabic in the United States. Omar's life straddles two genres, the familiar enslaved narrative, And the largely unfamiliar genre of Arabic writings collected and circulated by Omar's editors.
0: So, Omar wrote his life in formal Arabic in that West African or Maghrib script. Omar wrote his narrative almost 40 years before the invention of the typewriter, and he wrote it by hand on fragile paper in a single manuscript. This is mentioned on page six in this intro. Moreover, Omar's piece was significant to scholars in a way that his piece was the original slash the primary source since there were no copy machines, no printers, or even as mentioned, the typewriter. So it took many translators to piece out what was exactly the life of Omar ibn Said. What makes Omar different from other African American writers of enslaved narratives is that Omar already spoke the language before he was captured and wrote in a language that most of his, most of his enslavers could not read. The significance of Omar's life and how it goes past then, just the biography, is that Omar's words and how he was enabled to figure centrally in what we know about a former slave. This is on page four. As Professor Werner Sollers mentions, this autobiography as, quote, the long multilingual history in all genres of American literature. So this is not only opening a new window of perspective through the lens of a slave, but it also opens doors of the origins in their religion and Arabic, meaning decolonization, which also goes back to the whole tracing back in history. This is what Ala is
1: emphasizing, that Omar's autobiography is a text written by a captive under conditions of persecution which gives rise to a peculiar technique of writing in which the truth about all crucial things is presented exclusively between the lines. That is the multiple facets of Omar's identity, an Arabic speaker, a Muslim, a fool, a West African infor- information, and an American slave, an anti-colonializationist.
0: So remember about old Paul and Theodore Dwight, before we transition to this intro, we mentioned their names. So old Paul came from the futa just like Omar did, and Old Paul was actually a schoolmaster after pursuing a long course of preparatory studies. Omar's autobiography was then sent to Old Paul and then later presented the text to a man named Theodore Dwight, who was a free soiler who opposed the spread of slavery and was deeply interested in West Africa and made special efforts to obtain information from or respecting Mohammedan slaves in the U.S. This is mentioned on page 84. So Muslim slaves back then were referred to as Mohammedan slaves, those who practice Islam and those who follow the teachings of Muhammad. So the two were introduced to the text but needed translations. So that's when they went to a man named J. Franklin Jameson, who first published the translation of Omar's manuscript in 1925. J. Franklin Jameson then presented a translation made by the Reverend Isaac Byrd, Bird's translation was revised through Dr. F.M. Musa, who was the secretary of the Egyptian legation in Washington. This manuscript title page does not mention a man who we are familiar with, William B. Hodgson, who traveled in West Africa and studied the local vernacular's relation to Arabic. Bird's and Hodgson's writings shaped the view of Dwight, who circulated Arabic texts. So it is Dwight who we must appreciate how Omar's narrative bolstered an increasingly influential argument linking literacy, Islam, and manumission. And as we just saw, this whole translation aspect went through a full circle of translators and histories to unpack the story of Omar was sharing. Essentially, what just happened was kind of like that game of telephone or lexical conundrums.
1: Although the autobiography was translated... Aureus's next argument states that Omar's life is filled with concealed utterances that not only hide his views from potentially dangerous readers, but also test the readers to see who can interpret the utterances and therefore are within Omar's circle and community. Those who cannot decipher it are outside of it. Omar's language is rich in hidden meanings with nuances that seem to separate him from the white community of his owners to guard his identity even as a slave. Furthermore, Omar escaped losing his religion because his Islam allowed him some leeway in dealing with
0: Christian efforts to convert him. So Omar's life in the US during and post-slavery entails one of the many slaves who were Muslim. It is unfortunate to learn that some of the slaves were forced to leave their faith and convert to Christianity or absorb the religion that their masters followed. For those who are interested, more in the life of Omar Ibn Said, there is actually an opera occurring and is written by a woman named Rhiannon Giddens at the San Francisco Opera this coming November. So book your tickets. (laughs) Transitioning now to the third piece, knowing that this displacement in religion, the inequality in the economy and prejudice slaves experience became the subsequent events post-slavery. My question to you now is, how did this look during the civil rights era? Was Islam revived amongst African-Americans? And what did that look like? This is where we then transition to that third piece, Muslim America and the Nation of Islam by Don Marie Gibson. My first impression after reading this was, I remember at the beginning how it mentions that the Nation of Islam was opposed by Muslims in America and even Muslims around the world. And I was curious to why. And the theology of the NOI, to reason why it's so opposed, because its theology is that It appeals to men and speaks directly to their experiences as victims of structural racism. Yeah, people joined the NOI for different reasons, but Muslim Americans perceived it as heretical or heresy. And we will touch more on this soon in this part one. There was a quote mentioned on page two, how even beyond America's borders, do they find that this theology of the NOI also is heretical.
1: The organization was established by Wallace D. Fard Muhammad in Detroit in 1930. He converted thousands of African-Americans to his own unique interpretation of
0: Islam, explaining to the people that they were the chosen people of God. So here's where Muslim Americans and Muslims around the world perceive the NOI as heresy. White counterparts were the blue-eyed white devils. So basically the NOI kind of, the NOI perceives the African-American community as superior, than the white community which is why they would call their white counterparts the blue-eyed white devils who had been created by an evil scientist yakub on the island of patmos sixty-six thousand years ago fard introduced himself as a prophet identified his followers as the tribe of shabaz which was an ancient black civilization far taught that heaven and hell were just conditions that existed on earth and that those who rejected islam were living in hell hence why they saw the white counterparts as inferior Religious studies scholar Justine Bakker notes that Fard, quote, offered a vicious, Christ- vicious critique of Christianity and preached an ap- apocalyptic vision of the coming war of Armageddon, destruction of the world of the white man and domination of the black nation.
1: Before we move on, let's take a pause and go back to Omar Ibn Said.
0: Remember how we mentioned
1: that some slaves were absorbed and the religion their masters followed and or were forced to leave Islam? This left migrants without a spiritual home and that the, so- the Southern Black Church acted as a refuge for blacks and during slavery and its violent aftermath. Seven to ten percent of slaves were Muslims but prohibited to practice, so their faith remained as a memory.
0: However though, what helped African Americans identify as the quote natural religion was the Great Depression and Fard's teachings on personal responsibility. During the Great Depression, there was a significant economic decline, especially in the black community. Subsequently, the Great Depression led to the rise of female-headed households where Fard's teachings on personal responsibility and patriarchy spoke to the realities of the fragile family networks he encountered. Essentially, Fard knew how to move their hearts. Economic opportunity for blacks enhanced cult helped them them by means of economic opportunities post-slavery. Moving back to the NOI, what was interesting that they did frequently were Muslim missionaries to teach and convert significant numbers. So, I think the biggest takeaway to why Muslims find the NOI to be heretical is because many of the followers of the NOI never read the Qur'an.
1: Within the NOI, Fard encouraged his converts to adopt an ascetic lifestyle and to replace their surnames with an X. If this rings any bells, one of the followers is now a well-known human rights activist named Malcolm X, who we'll discuss in a little bit.
0: So after uh, Fard's leading the NOI, the NOI was later in the hands of Elijah Poole, who is now known as Elijah Muhammad from 1934 to 1975. Elijah made important alterations to the NOI's theology, where he elevated Fard to the position of a deity and instructed members to refer to Fard as the great messiah or Mahdi.
1: Men and women were attracted to Elijah's NOI because they regarded it as a fitting alternative to the civil rights movement and the black church, as written on page 11. Elijah taught his followers that they could never be equal to their white counterparts and that they, until they become economically independent. Going back to Elijah and Malcolm, apparently everything I thought about Malcolm X was wrong. Malcolm came from a rough upbringing, which resulted in him being, uh, participating in petty crimes. In prison, he learned of the NOI and converted. Upon his release, he became minister of the Detroit chapter and helped to diversify the NOI members. He eventually became a first national minister, which was a post created just for him. And he and Mohammed, um, also known as Elijah, shared a close friendship Until about 1963, when revelations about Elijah's sexual relationships came out, causing the distance between the two. Elijah may have engaged in sexual relations with Malcolm's former girlfriend. And he says that it was not that that caused his decision to leave the NOI. It was the possibility of punishment he actually might receive for making unauthorized comments concerning President Kennedy's assassination. Uh, Once out... Malcolm exposed Elijah's affairs to the national media and called Elijah a chief hypocrite. What was interesting here is that on page 15, Malcolm's assassination was at the hands of individuals associated with the NOI and was ordered by Elijah. This then opened the door for for again to succeed himself as national minister and minister of Temple 7, which was Malcolm's place.
0: I wanna touch more on Farahan, or known as Louis Farahan. He was basically Elijah's right-hand man during his whole leading the NOI. And what was unexpected, or what people did anticipate, was that Farahan would take Elijah's spot after Elijah's done. Who actually took the spot was Elijah's son, Wallace. When Elijah passed away in 1975, Wallace was the successor, not Farahan. This is mentioned on page 16. Wallace had long contested the NOI's theology and was suspended from the community multiple times before reinstated before his father's death. Wallace's succession ended the unorthodox teachings and practices of the NOI. He renamed the NOI as the World Community of Al-Islam in the West, which is known as WCIW, which opened membership to all regardless of race, disbanded from organizations, sold off NOI businesses, and renamed the newspaper Balailian News. The theological and structural changes that Wallace implemented helped thousands of NOI members to make the journey to Sunni Islam and reclaim their identity as American citizens. Changes also brought into line with American Muslim communities across the USA and initiated interfaith outreach between the WCIW and African American churches. So now, instead of seeing that inferior versus superior, black versus white, what Wallace did essentially was bring the communities together. And Wallace proved wary of Farrakhan and subsequently reassigned him from his ministerial post in Harlem, which was originally Malcolm's, to an, to an administrative job in Chicago, mentioned on page 17. Although what seems fixed, Farrakhan actually went back and to rebuild the NOI for the sake of Elijah, since his son ended the, since Wallace ended the unorthodox teachings, which soon received mass media exposure. Even though the numbers are much smaller than during the time of Elijah, the NOI is actually still present to this day.
1: Well, that concludes part one of the Hajj Narratives and Early Muslim Voices episode. We covered a lot today, and we hope you guys now have an open perspective on what Muslims and Islam looked like through the realm of slavery and the civil rights era. We hope you guys enjoy, and remember that, these source, that our sources are in the description to reference. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in part two, where we will discuss the Hajj and Malcolm X's reflections from his pilgrimage. Welcome to part two of the Hajj Narratives, and early Muslim Voices episode. I'm Isabella, and I'm Raisa. As promised, in this episode, we will be discussing what exactly is the Hajj, and why is it the fifth pillar of Islam. From there we will be discussing Malcolm X's experiences from his Hajj and how he reflected from his experience to a segregated America. Before we get started and to help our listeners follow along, we will provide both the documentary and a brief
0: synopsis of
1: the steps of the Hajj in the description.
0: So after watching the documentary, I had a I honestly had to rewatch this documentary just to remember the steps of Hajj, which did help me in that area. It is kind of comprehensive and extensive to understand how you do it, and it kind of is one of those instances where no matter your background, your knowledge, your expertise, your values, whatever, it's okay to be unfamiliar in an area that seems like it should be common knowledge to you by now, because learning should be limitless, right, and it shouldn't be silence or be ashamed on, and we shouldn't really be silenced about it if we just stay not knowing. Anyways... It also led me to relate to the pilgrims a lot who went through the Hajj and performed their Hajj. I didn't do Hajj myself, but I did do Umrah. So Umrah essentially is a shorter version of it. It can be done within a day and any time of the year. Whereas Hajj, you have to do it at a specific time of the Islamic calendar. Um, but just hearing these pilgrims in the documentary, hearing their stories on patience, the trials and tribulations, letting go of the worldly possessions, gave me chills because it honestly is such a rewarding experience to reflect on each of our faiths and relationship with God. It's purification and is where Muslims from all over the world go to attend. So the thesis of not only this documentary, but the purpose of Hajj is to connect with those early vulnerable times of faith during the time of the Prophet, Prophet Muhammad, and to test your ability to face trials throughout the whole pilgrimage because fatigue itself is a temptation, kind of like showing your true colors and what would that look like, such as would you turn your faith to Allah in such times? According to the Holy Quran, the pilgrim Hajj is a pilgrimage to the Ka'bah, which is a duty to men, owe to God, those who are able and make the journey, which is why Hajj is known to be that fifth pillar of Islam. The pillars of Islam are kind of like the mandatory foundations of Islam. The first one is like submission, and then it's prayer, and then it's fasting in Ramadan, Zakat or charity, or giving out yearly. And then the fifth one is Hajj, those foundations.
1: The purpose of the Hajj, as the documentary states, is to ask God's forgiveness for human failings. The Hajj documentary showed a group coming from Boston for the Hajj. I was really surprised by the various types of people going on this trip, Some were converts, not all were Arabs. And and there was even an executive in higher education, an ophthalmologist and an app designer from Saudi Arabia. This just really showed me that the Hajj is for everyone and it truly is a communal experience. All the people traveled together from Boston and they were going to Jeddah, Medina and Mecca together. Although this is an incredibly powerful spiritual experience, it can also be quite emotional and overwhelming as we learned from the documentary. People have different experiences of the hajj, overcoming trials and overcoming fatigues. There is constant moving, going back and forth to pray, the mass crowds, eating foreign foods, odd hours, little sleep, and it all tests one's patience. One man participating even mentions that Muslims are seen in the media as angry and impatient, so he finds this to be a true test for Muslims such as himself.
0: So what the pilgrims first initially thought before they were going to go to their Hajj was that they would do their Hajj out in the desert, in the hot sun. And that's kind of like that orientalist mindset, if we remember back a few episodes. And that's not to shame them. It's just something we're all vulnerable and kind of like defaulted to think first. Right. But once they got there, they saw like how massive the masjids were or the mosque were and like how many Muslims coming from all over the world. It's not just Arabs going to the Hajj or to Mecca and Medina, something that we should first clarify. Muslims from all over the world, Indonesia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, so on and so forth, you name it, right? It kind of helps to decolonize through the lens of what Hajj or the pilgrimage is because it is through the voices of individuals from Boston. The
1: first stop is Medina, where they come to prepare for the journey. The journey to Medina describes how Islam started. People go to visit their prophet and to ask Allah for forgiveness.
0: So in Medina, this is going to hold the second biggest mosque called Masjid al-Nabawi. This masjid is home to the prophet's grave where Muslims can go and get as close as possible to say their salams or greetings to the prophet and pray. This is also the time where it will test your body, mind, and patience. Some of the pilgrims in the documentary were worried that if they let the anger get the best of them, it will reduce the purpose of the pilgrimage, that the connection of the prophet is farther away. The conduct of foreign Muslim women and American Muslim women is also very different. The chaplain from Boston found the extreme distance and separation of women frustrating along with, this, with some of the interactions she had as a woman. So I guess what she's coming from is that the prayer etiquette in the masjid how how it is is that men are in the front and women are in the back and that's not to say any like superior or inferior type thing it's mainly actually for modesty and respect between both genders because when women pray in the front and then there's a man behind you praying and you're like on the ground supplicating praying or like bowing it's just kind of uncomfortable having someone, having a man behind you, right? So just for modesty and protection, they purposely separate the men from the women, having the men in the front. Um, but that's also what kind of is in frustrating for women because the interactions or the prayers to the Prophet's grave is farther, which is what the the chaplain was feeling. And I totally understand where she's coming from. It was definitely a lot of adrenaline because there was so much crying, shoving, screaming. And I was also in tears, but like, as soon as I realized that I was in the presence of Prophet Muhammad, it kind of made me like compose myself more, or I guess cry more, because it truly is a blessing to come from so far to finally being in the place where it all started.
1: The next step is getting into Iram, where men wear two pieces of cloth, and women wear something white but modest and clean, such as no makeup, perfume, etc.,
0: so the reason to why this is, is because you're now in the eye, front of the eyes of God. You are the same. Because it really no longer matters like what you work as, your reputation, your expertise, your knowledge, your status. We just mentioned that these people from Boston are from different backgrounds and like different levels of education. None of that really matters anymore because the role you are in this world, none of that matters to Allah. Because what matters now is your iman or faith to Allah. So this is where they finally go from Medina to Mecca in that state of Ihram. They would drive to Mecca for a few hours. And as they get to Mecca, they would re- repeat, لَبَيْكَ la لَبَيْكَ Or here I come, my Lord. Here I come, my Lord. In that same supplication or remembrance, um, they would also say, إِنَّ wa وَالنِّئْمَةَ wal mulk. Again, we see mulk again, meaning sovereignty, as mentioned in Omar ibn Said's piece, reminding us that Allah is the supreme. Once the pilgrims reach Masjid al-Haram, or Mecca, they would see the Ka'bah, which is that black cube you see in your books, your history books. And once they see the Ka'bah, they would do the Tawaf, or circling the Ka'bah seven times. This also is going to test your patience because you will be bumping against people. And you are supposed to be bumping against people while supplicating, saying words of remembrance to Allah, which is a couple in the documentary, a couple mentions to her husband, she says, we're not supposed to be talking, we're supposed to be supplicating. And that's just that remembrance, trying to like keep your, keep your cool in such like a high stake, high stress environment. And but the, in the end, the power of the tawaf is that you're being surrounded by Muslims around the world, not just the Middle East. And again, something to clarify is that it's not only Arabs in Saudi Arabia doing the Hajj. It's people, it's very, very diverse environment. So in the Kaaba, you have something called the black stone. This black stone in one of the corners, I forgot which one, but this stone is known to be a stone from the heavens, where kissing the stone will put a piece of heaven inside of us. My personal experience, it can get really violent. If you are lucky to kiss it, you are blessed. But something to know is that even touching the Kaaba is already a true blessing, which I actually had the opportunity to, getting close enough and touching it. And there was actually a pilgrim in the documentary who said he was able to kiss the stone. And he quotes that he was truly alone with God in a sea of people. So can you imagine such a privilege? So then after circling the Tawaf, the pilgrims would run between the hills of Safa and Marwa. There's a story behind this where it dates back to Hajar, um, the one who took care of Abraham's son, Ismail. How Hajar and Ismail were surrounded in the desert and no water no food and just her and a crying child so she was stressed right so what did she do she ran back and forth between these seven hills or between these hills seven times and now that is just the practice we do in Hajj because the significance of that is the spouting of the Zamzam water that holy water that we now drink to even to this day and it's just kind of incredible because one of the practices of Hajj we do follows the footsteps of a woman So they would run between Safa and Marwa, and then they would just keep doing this circulating, the running, up until it comes to the eighth day of the pilgrimage, where they would put their ihram again and head to a city called Mina, which is a city few hours away from Masjid al-Haram. The pilgrims would stay in Mina for a day and spend in supplication and prayer in preparation for tomorrow at Arafat, which we will discuss in a bit. So that night before heading to Arafat, it's just like a full day of anticipation. Pilgrims are wondering, will my hajj be accepted? How much of it? How strong is my faith? Uh, what if something goes wrong, such as impatience or an inconvenience along the way? So a lot of emotions, a lot of stress, lots of anticipation. Comes the ninth day. The ninth day is where the pilgrims would head nine miles to Mount Arafat. This is, out of the whole pilgrimage, this is going to be that single most important part of the hajj where it's known that Allah will descend to the lowest part of the heavens. So there, this is the one where nothing at Arafat, but there's just desert, and hope that you will get acceptance from God. This is also the place where Muhammad gave his farewell sermon before he passed, which captured his beliefs. At this point, the pilgrims are only focused on the sincerity of their prayers, to connect with God, and to be forgiven by God. At this point as well, you... You will see pilgrims pray for their family and mankind as well because as previously mentioned, it's such a blessing to be there and not everyone can be there. So might as well include who you, who comes to mind in your prayers. So after Arafat, that same day, the ninth of the pilgrimage at night, the, the night of the ninth day, uh, pilgrims would spend at a place called Musdelifa. This is known to be the place where Abraham faces his greatest test, which is sacrificing his son. This is also the story where the devil tempts Abraham to disobey to have Abraham disobey God, but Abraham commits to God's message. Here pilgrims will collect seven stones to throw at the devil. You cannot like act the story and become it. You throw whatever it is that is tempting you. The moral of the story here is that not that Abraham. It's not about homicide or preventing it. It's more that Abraham trusts Allah more than anything and ignore the temptations of the devil, which is why you see pilgrims collecting stones in preparation as they go back to Mina.
1: In Mina, pilgrims return to stone the devil. There's a giant stone pillar that symbolizes the devil. And the importance is that they say, I am in the place of Abraham and I am doing what Abraham did you act the story, you become it, you throw at the devil whatever is tempting you, whatever's on your mind, creating negative thoughts, creating harm in your life.
0: Exactly. And then after that, the next day, it would be something what we all know as Eid al-Adha, where we celebrate the saving of Abraham's son, and you see a lot of people sacrifice animals, so lambs, cows, and this is also where you see men shave their head and beards, Women don't shave their heads, they just cut their hair, just a really little piece. (laughs) And it just signifies that the Hajj is done. And the journey then ends with the final seven circles around the Ka'bah. And if you guys remember, the pilgrims began their Hajj with the seven circles, and now they're ending it with the seven circles around the Ka'bah. So it's just something about that repetition where you have seven circles, seven stones, seven runs back and forth, reciting and supplicating. Or maybe when you go back you will practice more and the same thing applies for the month of ramadan too the month of ramadan should be where you let go of your entertainment and focus on worship and to see that even outside of the ramadan will you continue doing that they do say the real
1: hajj will start when they go home it can only be achieved with the cooperation of others Now, it is this idea that I hope our listeners keep in mind as we transition to Malcolm X's reflections and experiences when he went to perform his Hajj, how Malcolm X came from a segregated America and is bewildered and in awe throughout his journey.
0: So now we will be discussing Mecca in the autobiography of Malcolm X as told by Alex Haley. So what I did not know about Malcolm X is that he fulfilled his Hajj, and I did not know that. Um, I just know that he was converted to he converted to Islam, but when he went to Hajj, it was actually his sister who like insisted him on going. And I thought that was pretty cool. I also like the narrative of this autobiography and dialogue because it kind of felt like more than a story. It felt like I was in the mind of Malcolm X throughout his whole thought process. So just like the trials and tribulations the Boston group faced, Malcolm did as well. But what I also found similar coming from both is that they always looked up to God where Malcolm determines that his blessings from the beginning of his trip were signs from Allah.
1: A little summary and thesis of this autobiography is Malcolm X decolonizes the white complexion in the Middle East versus the U.S. And he also decolonizes the term color throughout his
0: travels to complete his hajj. So to begin with, Malcolm applied for visa for Hajj Hajj for Hajj, and then this is where the Saudi ambassador told Malcolm that no Muslim converted in America could have a visa for Hajj without the signed approval of Dr. Shawarbi. Dr. Shawarbi is a scholar in, I'm pretty sure, New York, but when Malcolm received approval letter from Dr. Shawarbi, Malcolm also received a book called The Eternal Message of Muhammad by Abdurrahman Azam. This Muhammad, this Abdurrahman Azam, we will mention again, and is actually the author of the book, um, and an Egyptian-born Saudi citizen, and an international statesman, and actually one of the closest advisors of Prince Faisal, the ruler, the ruler of Saudi Arabia, who followed Malcolm in the press very closely. So Malcolm received the phone number of Dr. Shawarbi's son, and the author of Dr. Omar Azam, who lived in Jeddah. This was also the moment where Malcolm considered to be the first sign of Allah, where he's already being, where he already is like kind of like networking and knows who to reach out to in case he needs any help.
1: Malcolm was truly bewildered on his way to Jeddah. He met a student who was attending school in France at the Frankfurt airport. On page 321, he says, I saw something I had already experienced when I looked upon as a Muslim and not as an African-American, right in America. People seeing you as a Muslim saw you as a human being, and they had a very different look, different talk, everything. This is basically saying that he felt more that when he was identified specifically as a Muslim, not being seen also as an African-American, he he understood that people talked to him differently. They treated him differently. He felt like he was being treated more holistically when he was Mm. being treated as a Muslim.
0: I like that term holistically. It's definitely that more sense of, Belonging and inclusivity yeah. that was very, very not foreign but very new to him. Yes. And then this happened again actually when he was on the United Arab Airlines plane to Cairo. Many Muslims on the pilgrimage were hugging and embracing. They were all complexions. The whole atmosphere was warmth and friendliness. And that's also what I felt when I went to Umrah. Everyone was so welcoming. Everyone was also very giving. And just like what Malcolm experienced, he says, that feeling hit me that there really wasn't any color problem here. This is again another of Allah's signs that whenever I turned, someone was there to help me and guide me.
1: Malcolm was also shocked by how much praise he was getting on the plane to Jeddah. The captain of the plane even came back to greet Malcolm, which it says on page 324, and says his complexion was darker than mine. He could have walked in Harlem. No one would have given him a second glance. Malcolm was also invited back to the cockpit, where the co-pilot was darker than he was. Malcolm had never seen a black man flying a jet. Both of the, He says that both of the pilots were smiling at me, treating me with the same respect and honor I had received ever since I first left America. In America, I had ridden in more planes than probably any other, and there I was with two Muslim seatmates, one from Egypt and the other from Arabia, all bound for Mecca. I knew Allah was with me.
0: So at the Jeddah Airport, Malcolm had to give his letter from Dr. Shawarbi to verify his entrance into the Holy City. Unfortunately, Malcolm had to go to the Mahgama Sharia, which was a Muslim high court which examined all possibly non-authentic converts to the Islamic region religion seeking in, to enter Mecca. It was absolute that no non-Muslim could enter Mecca. And this was my parents experience as well. And it's not because that Saudi Arabia is against non-Muslims. No, but it's mainly the idea of tourism, right? Mecca yes. and Medina is not a place for tourism; it's a place for worship. So they can't they can't just let anybody in. They only have to let Muslims, Muslims who are seeking place for worship. And with my parents, they had to go through that too. My parents are Muslim; they were born Muslim, but it was their names that ended up stopping them. Uh, they weren't quote Muslim names or Arab names, so they were kind of suspicious and had to like do what Malcolm was going through, just because like verify and confirm that they are Muslim, which I never knew. We still had to. I don't know clarify our religion and identity i had no idea about that the whole process of identification
1: was really new and really interesting to me
0: yeah and then as we mentioned with malcolm he had friends who guided him ever since frankfurt to cairo and now that he was going to be separating from his friends he realizes that he's his friends were have to gonna have to go without him and that they were concerned for malcolm to which malcolm responds with don't worry i'll be fine allah guides me On the way to the dormitory, he says,
1: I don't believe that motion picture cameras have ever filmed a human spectacle more colorful than my eyes took in. He was passing members of every race on earth, Chinese, Indonesian, Afghanistani. He said it was like pages out of a National Geographic magazine. He also encountered a Persian Muslim who indicated that he wanted Malcolm to come and have breakfast with him and his wife on their rug. Although Malcolm said no thanks, he still brought tea and
0: cookies to, to him. So everyone was making these gestures and like all the Muslims in the compartment was offering Malcolm food, which is mentioned on page 33, where Malcolm quotes, my being an American Muslim changed the attitudes from merely watching me to wanting to look out for me. Malcolm then remembers the phone number that Dr. Shawarbi gave. That is actually the number of the author's son who lives in Jeddah. And his name was Dr. Omar Azam and to which... Malcolm immediately ran to the nearest telephone to call Dr. Omar Azam and say, Hey, I'm stuck in the airport. Can you come get me? And then Dr. Omar Azam came straight to the airport. And when he first met Dr. Omar Azam, Malcolm quotes, In American, he would have been called a white man. But it struck me hard and instantly from the way he acted, I had no feeling of him being a white man. So then in less than half an hour, he had gotten Malcolm released, suitcase and passport retrieved from customs, and now in Dr. Azam's car. Speechless at the man's attitude and at my own physical feeling of no difference between us as human beings. I I had heard for years of Muslim hospitality, but one couldn't quite imagine such warmth.
1: When he arrived at Dr. Azam's home, he said, Each of them embraced me as though I were a long-lost child. No matter how I protested that I felt no inconvenience, that I was fine, they would not hear it. The author, Abdur Abraham Azam, who was staying in a suite at the Jeddah Palace Hotel, insisted on switching living hospitalities with Malcolm. Malcolm's thought process was very confused. He was very confused as to how a man in Jeddah related to Arabia's ruler, a close advisor, an international man with nothing in the world to gain, would help a man like him. He was confused by the fact to why someone would help him and he to why someone would help him as he was known as a racist, an anti white, a criminal, and someone who was accused as using Islam as a cloak for his criminal practices and philosophies.
0: It was then at this point where Malcolm decolonizes the term of white man, where in America White man meant specific attitudes and actions toward the black man. But in the Muslim world, I had seen that men with white complexions were more genuinely brotherly than anyone else had ever been. And Malcolm even considered the author to be his father. To this, Malcolm looks up to Allah and thanks him for this blessing, and quote, I must pray again that my wife and children back in America will always be blessed for the sacrifices too. Later, Dr. Azam taught Malcolm the racial lineage of the descendants of Muhammad. He showed that how they were black and white, also pointed out how color, the complexities of color, and the problems of color which exist in the Muslim world exist only where and to the extent that that area of Muslim world had been influenced by the West. If one encountered any differences based on attitude towards color, this directly reflected the degree of Western influence. Once Malcolm retrieved his belongings and passport at the Hajj committee court, the judge was a man named Sheikh Mohammed Harkon, who was not only recognized Malcolm as a true Muslim, but also gave him two books in English and the other in Arabic. He then recorded Malcolm's name in the Holy Register of True Muslims, to which the Sheikh says, I hope you will become a great preacher of Islam in America. Later, Malcolm finds out that Dr. Azam reached out to Mohammed Abdul Aziz Majid, who was the deputy chief protocol for Prince Faisal to take Malcolm straight to Mecca. It was then later how they parked near the great mosque, which was Masjid al-Haram and performed ablution or wudu and entered. Ablution is that cleansing before they start prayer. Upon seeing the Kaaba,
1: he's, uh, Malcolm says that it was being circumambulated by thousands upon thousands of praying pilgrims, both sexes and every size, shape, color, and race in the world. During his Hajj in Arafat, Someone asked, what about the Hajj impressed Malcolm? He replied, the brotherhood, the people of all races, colors from all over the world coming together as one. It has proved to me the power of one God. He even gave a sermon on America's racism and its evils. The audience was absolutely shocked and had a very tender heart for all the unfortunate and very sensitive feelings for truth and justice. To me, That, to me, the Earth's most explosive explosive and pernicious evil is racism, the inability of God's creatures to live as one, especially in the Western world.
0: So this is where Malcolm concludes with the question, can Islam be indigenous in the U.S.? And in his letter that he wrote after he completes his Hajj, Malcolm writes that he hopes for the U.S. to decolonize the segregation and to restore community or that sense of inclusivity in the U.S., He then says in his letter, America needs to understand Islam because this is the one religion that erases from its society the race problem. The white attitude was removed from their minds by the religion of Islam. I have never been sincere and true brotherhood practice by all colors together, irrespective of their color. We were truly all the same because their belief in one God removed the white from their minds, the white from their behavior, and the white from their attitude. I could see from this that perhaps, if white Americans could accept the oneness of God, then perhaps too they could accept in reality the oneness of man and cease to measure and hinder and harm others in terms of their differences in color. This letter is on page three hundred forty-one, to which he ends with, "All praise is due to Allah, the Lord of all the worlds." Muhammad Ali speaks on his conversion to Islam.
1: Likewise, M- Malcolm X's Hope for America, Muhammad Ali, also takes the stand on decolonization, decolonizing the segregated community in America, starting with the importance of our names and its history in an interview discussing Ali's conversion to Islam 24 hours after winning the world heavyweight title. They really wasted no time with that interview. <laughs> the interviewer asks why Muhammad Ali changed his name. He simply replies, Cassius Clay is a slave name, and I am no longer a slave. Muhammad means worthy of all praises and Ali means most high. He wants to be known all over the world with that name. And that's the name he has chosen for himself.
0: There was also another interviewer who asked Ali what attracted him to Islam. To which Ali responds with, The Muslim religion is the true teachings of Elijah Muhammad, if we remember from the NOI from part one. The history of ourselves, the history of our true religion, our nationality, our names. We have names like Hawkins, Smith, Jones, and Johnson, but these, these are slave names. I knew the truth, I knew the history. Muhammad Ali is a beautiful name, a name of our ancestors. So so this goes back to our conversation of lexical conundrums where even our names have a significance, that behind every name has a history, and you hold that history as a title with which is what Ali is saying. Both activists, Malcolm and Muhammad Ali, wanted a unified U.S. where there is no white or black, no inferiority or superiority, and that all comes down to understanding the side of Islam on having that sense of community and the history, the nation, the religion, and ourselves. Well, that concludes our episode.
1: Thank you for listening to Getting Comfortable, where no one is an expert. I'm Isabella. And I'm Raisa. And we'll see you in our final episode with Kat and Amanda. This final episode will be covering America, where the questions are, is it either or, neither nor, America or America?
0: Stay tuned. Thanks for listening.